Well, welcome to the first Tyler's Two Breakfast of this year. It's nice to see so many people. We'll have to change locations next time so everyone gets a comfy seat. But thank you for squeezing in. And thanks to Vaughn and the team for organising all the food for this morning. Did a great job. Thank you very much. Arriving early, setting it all up. All right. Well, if you'd like a title for this morning, it's called From Fear to Freedom. And we're actually going to be looking at a few different passages over our time together. But to begin with, I just wanted to start in 1 Peter 5 verses 6 to 7 to kind of set the scene. And then this is the passage we're going to be coming back to a bit later. So if you open your Bibles up to 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at chapter 5 verses 6 to 7. Should say, open your Bibles or your phones, isn't it? (laughs) Okay. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for all these ladies in the room, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity we have for this time together, Father. And Lord, I just pray that you would be glorified this morning, Lord. I pray that you would... Help me in my weakness, Lord. Would you be strong, Lord? Would we hear your words? Would you encourage us, Lord? Would you challenge us, and Lord? Would you cast our, our eyes back to you this morning, Father? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, when you think of the word fear, what comes to your mind? Like, would you call yourself a fearful person, an anxious person? Or, you know, when somebody says to you, what are you scared of? What kind of things come to your mind? Because I think to some degree, we all experience fears at different times in our life. For me, I have like my minor fears, which are probably a bit more irrational as spiders. I absolutely hate spiders. And I know I live in the wrong country to hate spiders. <laughs> and I particularly hate spiders in cars. Thankfully, it's only happened a handful of times in the nine years that um, we've been in Australia. But one time that particularly stands in my mind was um, when I was taking Savannah to preschool. So it was only me and Savannah um, in the car. Nobody else was at home. We were about to pull out the driveway. And I was sat in the car and she just goes, Mommy, spider! And I'm like, don't do that to me! <laughs> uh, but I look up, because sometimes they'd done that and there wasn't. And I was expecting to see this like this tiny little thing. But I look up, there's this big huntsman like right above my head. And so I stopped in the driveway and I hopped out the car and I did what every good mother would do. I got my three-year-old to try and catch the spider. <laughs> <laughs> so I get with a bucket and I'm like, yeah, just try to switch it in. <laughs> but because um, I seriously cannot get close enough to do any spiders. But um, anyway, it didn't work. And the worst thing happened that she kind of knocked it and it like did its fall and run thing. And you're just like, no, I've lost it. I've been to the neighbours to see if they were home. But they hadn't been home. Anyway, she must have arrived home and she probably saw a bit of commotion in the driveway. So she comes up, she's like, is everything okay? I'm like, oh, there's a spider in the car. She's like, ah, oh, okay. So she gets her mortine and she comes and it had gone like under the steering lock. So she sprayed under like half a can of mortine. <laughs> Didn't come out, she couldn't find it. So after about five minutes, she's like, look, you know what? Just get a preschool. She's like, it will be dead. There's no way it's going to live through that, that amount of mortine. So I was like, oh, I'm not sure about this. Anyway, reluctantly, I got in the car and I was driving for about five minutes and everything was fine. And then at the corner of my eye, I saw this spider crawling up the door beside me. I'm like, okay, don't panic, don't panic. Just pull over, just pull over. So I pulled over the car. I got out the passenger side. And I walked around. Thankfully, I had thought to take the mortine and the bucket with me. So I opened the car door and like sprayed the rest of the can on it and like flipped it out. And like people driving past, I could see them laughing at me. They're kidding me. Well, they never stopped to help, which 
just a little unfair. <laughs> anyway, all that to say, spiders are definitely not my friend. And also heights. I do not do well with heights. Like, even at the shopping centre yesterday, you know when you get those, like, the, the banisters, like, you can look over and down the next floor. I can't. I get to about three metres and my knees just start shaking. It's like, I think I'm going to involuntarily throw myself over the edge, you know? So, but those are kind of the funny, more, less serious fears. But there's also some bigger fears I have in my life and um, I think the biggest fear I have battled and still battle in my life is the fear of man I mean growing up I was probably known as the shy kid didn't really like talking to people I didn't know would kind of hide behind my parents and things like that and that kind of continued into adulthood um I didn't like in America when we were at the Partis College I remember being in uh, in a life group setting and I remember just asking the question I don't even remember what the question was but for some reason, I then worked up in my mind over the evening that it was a really stupid question. And by the time I got home, I was like, everyone's probably thinking I'm really stupid. What are they thinking about me? And then I'm like, don't be stupid. They're not even thinking about you right now. You know, but you know just how fears get it into your head. Like public speaking, like, oh my goodness. Like I used to feel sick for weeks beforehand. Now I just feel sick for hours beforehand. <laughs> but um, like looking at friendships, I was very bothered what people thought of me. I would see other people's friendships and get jealous and think, oh, I, would, I want them to like me the way they like that person and just really like really bothered about what people think and then you have kids and oh my goodness fear of man and kids because kids are just like out there and do everything <laughs> I remember Dave telling me that um about six or seven years ago the first time Bob Coughlin was coming over he said oh Bob's gonna come and stay at our house for 10 days and I'm like why <laughs> why would you do that to me um and I just remember thinking where can I send the kids the kids are never gonna behave themselves for 10 days so anyway, he came and the kids were fine. It was all my own fear of man. Um, disappointing people. I hate saying no to people. That has been a big challenge for me because I'm worried about what they're going to think of me if I say no. And I want them to like me. And the biggest problem is with the fear of man, I'm more bothered by what other people think of me than I am of what God thinks of me. What their opinion is, is far more important to me than what God's opinion is. And I find this particularly still in evangelism. Like my unbelieving friends... Like, I struggle to share the gospel with them because I want them to like me. I don't want them to think I'm a weird Christian freak, you know, even though I am. <laughs> but um, ultimately, what's that saying? That's saying, I love myself and my reputation more than I've bothered about the fact that you're going to hell. And when you think about it like that, when you think of the fear of man and what you're really saying, um, it's a really massive problem. So that's one of my... The other fear, which I think is probably growing, which is bad because the kids are getting older, is the fear for my kids... Um, I think when they were younger, I've probably felt like I had more control. So I didn't worry about them as much because they're kind of with me. You know, I can control what they get into. But I think particularly as Josh has started driving, like, again, on the L's, I'm not so bothered because, you know, I can grab the, <laughs> grab the handbrake, pull the steering wheel. I feel like I have more control with the thought of him getting his peas. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, he's going to be driving by himself. What if he has a car accident? What if he gets killed? Like, I know people that have lost teenage kids in car accidents. Um, what if they get sick like I know three families at the minute whose kids are battling cancer two of them for the second time you know it happens and I have to really guard my imagination and my mind about that happening anyway the point is not to leave you with more fears than you already can <laughs> but my point is that we live in a broken world bad things do happen there's a lot that can tempt us to fear there's a lot to be fearful of in many senses you know even the bible says as sure as sparks fly upwards troubles fall there's lots to um, fill our minds with fears. We could be failing an exam if you're at school or at uni. Could be terminal illness. Could be financial strain. Sydney's an expensive city. There's lots to be fearful of there. Could be being alone. 
Maybe you feel like you don't have many friends. Maybe you're feeling isolated. Could be not getting the job, not getting the job that you wanted. Or if you are a mum failing your kids, a child rejecting the faith, not growing up to know and love Jesus, that can be things we're fearful of. Not getting married could be things that we're fearful of. Or if we do get married, what if my husband dies? You know, I remember feeling that one when I first got married. So anyway, the one thing that I want to encourage us all in this morning as we open up God's words together is that when the fears of the world consume us, we must humble ourselves, remember who God is, and fear him. When you're lying awake at night and you're thinking about those things, those things that regularly come to mind that tempt you to fear, that consume you, the only way to move from fear to freedom is to humble ourselves, remember who God is, and fear him. And so here's what I want to do for the rest of our time together. Look at two things. Number one, the reason we fear. And number two, the remedy to fear. And my hope is for us all that as we open up God's word and we look at these two things, that we really take a step in moving from fear to freedom. Okay, so number one, the reason we fear. But I think to understand why the fears of the world can consume us at times, we need to go back to the beginning, back to Genesis. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have the story of creation. And we saw how God created the world and everything in it, created man and woman. And he said everything was good. Yet up to this point, Adam and Eve had brought fruit in the garden. They had nothing to be fearful of. They enjoyed an intimate personal relationship with God. And he would, would fulfill them. And they found their joy in him. But then in Genesis 3, something changed. Adam and Eve decided to eat the fruit from the tree that God had forbidden. And something was different. And we know that something changed because when they heard God walking in the garden after that, they hid. They no longer ran to him and had that enjoyment and carefreeness. They actually hid. If you listen to Genesis 3, 8 to 10, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So they'd gone from enjoying that intimate relationship with God to being afraid and to being hiding. Something had changed, but we know God hadn't changed. He was still good and still is good. He was still the perfect sustainer of them. He still provided for them. So what happened? What changed to make them go from that intimate relationship to being afraid in his presence? Well, sin changed. Sin happened. Adam and Eve exchanged the relationship they had with the creator for the created. They thought they knew best. They wanted more. And God's presence in the garden, it no longer filled them with that joy and that awe and that peace, but it filled them with terror and they hid. Sin changed everything from the fall. We know that. We see that. And including our fears. Sin changed our fears. So the reason we fear is sin. And I believe this plays out in two different ways in our lives. And number one is pride. Ultimately, we believe we know best. I think this can particularly relate to fears into the future, into health or family or finances or job situations. We think we really know what's best for us. We're not really sure that God knows it best. We know we think he knows what's best, but what if I don't like what God thinks is best? What if I can't handle what God thinks is best? We want to control. We want to make sure what we think is best happens. So it might be the job, the job that you see on paper that looks perfect for you. It might be, I just need to make sure I get this job. It's perfect location. The wages are good. It's the perfect job for me. 
or it might be your health. Maybe you're struggling with a long-term sickness and you just think, I haven't got time for this. I need to get out. I need to earn some money. I need to provide for myself and my family. Or, you know, I've got kids. I haven't got time for this long-term sickness. How am I going to care for them? We think we know what best. But ultimately, it's because we're proud. Our pride causes us to fear and to try and take control to try and play God in our lives. Really, we put ourselves on the throne in our lives. We think we know what's best. We try and control it. We try and make what we think is best happen. It's our pride. And the second reason is unbelief. It's a lack of faith. We don't really believe all the things that God says about himself. We never say that with our words. But we don't really believe in our hearts that God is all-powerful, that he's keep his promises, that he's faithful, that he will never leave us or forsake us. Because if we really believe those things, if you think about it, if we really believed that he's all-powerful, he's faithful, he'll never leave us or forsake us, we'd actually have no reason to ever fear anything. <laughs> but the reality is, we don't really believe that in our hearts. We question his character. When we fear God, when we fear, sorry, we're not, we're, what we're saying to God is, I don't really think you've got this. I know you probably have, and I really hope you have, but I'd better figure out plan B just in case your plan doesn't work and I come falling down flat on my face. You know, maybe when it's your kids, maybe you think, I know what's best. I know what school I need to go to. I know where we need to live to, in order for them to be happy and successful. Or your job. I know which job I need. Or your house. I know which area I need to be in. All these things that we think that we know what's best and we try to control. So ultimately, the reason we fear is sin. We're proud and we struggle with unbelief. That's ultimately what it comes down to. But the Bible tells us that when the fears of this world consume us, we must humble ourselves, remember who God is, and fear him. Which brings us to our second point, the remedy to fear. Right. Sometimes, I think, when we're fearful or anxious, we can be tempted to use scripture as a bit of an antibiotic. We think, one passage, three times a day for a week, and my fear will be gone. You know, I think I've done it myself. Again, we don't say that, but we just, we keep repeating these passages. We think of passages like Matthew 6, 25 to 34, which talks about not being anxious about your life, not what you'll eat or drink, or what you'll wear. Talks about how, how God provides for the leaves of the fields and the sparrows of the air, and we think, yes, 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 and I'm far more valuable than that, so... Surely God will provide for me. Or we memorise passages such as Philippians 4 to 6, where it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, and these passages, they are true and they are good. And they're good to memorise and they're good to be looking at. But I think if we want to really get to the root of our fears, the root of our anxieties, we need to actually go back further. We need to look at what Peter says, his exhortation in 1 Peter 5, verse 6 to 7, to see what it really is, the route that it comes to. So if we just look at that one more time, 1 Peter 5, verses 6, says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So what's the remedy to sinful fear? What are we to do if we're going to move from fear to freedom? Well, number one, we're going to humble ourselves. Well, I think this passage I've looked at in relation to fear a number of times, but I think we often walk into it on verse 7 when it says, Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. But actually, to really understand what Peter's talking about, to really understand what he's exhorting us to do, we need to start in verse 6 where he says, Humble yourselves. 
humble yourselves is actually what Peter wants us to hear and he wants, he wants us to obey. We're not going to cast all our cares upon him until we realise that he is God and we are not, until we humble ourselves. You know, we are his servants, we were bought with a price, we've been adopted into his family, we've been exalted as his children, but he is the king. We are not, but we like to think we are. So first of all, we need to humble ourselves. In his article entitled The Secret of Dealing with Fear and Anxiety, Ed Welsh says the following. He says, it sounds very simple, and it is, but it changes everything. This is the secret of dealing with fears and anxiety. The words of God and the comfort of the Spirit become much more obvious when we are repentant and humble before him. No deals. If you would just spare me from this suffering, then I will dot, dot, dot. Just simple trust. We trust him because he is God, not because he's going to immediately remove our anxieties or our fear-provoking situation. That's so encouraging, isn't it? We trust him because he is God. He is God and he knows best. We are not God and we do not know best. We don't always understand God's ways. His ways are not our ways. He is higher, he is mighty. But we need to humble ourselves and recognise that he is God and he knows best. And there's no better place to see this humility modelled than in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you just flick back to, we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 49. Give you a second just to find that. Luke 22. 22, 39 to 49. Sorry, did I say it wrong? You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, but is without sin. And this actually includes the temptation to fear. So if we start reading in verse 39, it says, And he came up and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And I think what we see in those verses is Jesus is clearly fearful. <laughs> it talks about, in verse 44, him being in agony. He earnestly prayed. You sense the desperation in his prayer. He's not just finding this situation easy. He's tempted to fear. It says the sweat became like drops of blood. You know, he's experiencing physical symptoms. His body is reacting to the fear that he is experiencing. And he's crying out to God for his circumstances to change. In verse 42, he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But if you just notice his words, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's not angry. He's not demanding. He's not saying, if you really love me, you wouldn't make me go through this. He's not bargaining. He's not saying, if you stop this, I promise I'll do anything else, just anything, but not this. He's not talking like that. He's saying, if you are willing, remove this cap from me. But he's humbling himself. He's sitting under God's authority. He's saying, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's humility. 
You know, it's not wrong to pray and ask God for our difficult circumstances to change. Humbling ourselves doesn't mean we just have to reluctantly accept everything God brings into our lives and be like, oh, well, you know, it must be God's plan, so, you know, what can I do? Just got to accept it. No, humbling ourselves is our heart's disposition. Humbling ourselves is the way we talk to God, the way we ask. If there's any other way, Lord, could you remove this from me, remove this situation, yet not what I will, but yours be done. It's willingly placing ourselves under the authority of God, recognising this is hard. If there's any other way, could you, could you move it? Could you change this? Could you heal me from my sickness? Could you provide this job that I need? You know, could you save my kids? But remembering to humble ourselves. But ultimately, you are God and I am not. Recognising that he knows best. Recognising that he sees the bigger picture. Our stories are one story in God's massive plan of redemption. And we don't see all that God sees. But he does. And he knows what's best. And he's working all things to get together for the good of those who love him. So what is the remedy to sinful fear? What are we to do if we are going to move from fear to freedom? Well, firstly, we need to humble ourselves. And then secondly, we need to remember who God is. You know, have you ever been talking to someone and you're talking about something you're going through and you're just expressing your anxiety or fears that you're experiencing or what could happen? And they say, you know, you just need to trust God, which is true. I mean, I know I've probably said that to people in this room. (laughs) It is true. And it can be easy to throw around phrases like that. But why, why can we trust God? Why should we trust God? I think to have the faith to trust God, we actually have to know God. And that doesn't just mean knowing there is a God, believing in a God. Actually really know, means knowing who he is, knowing why we can trust him. You know, God is not like us. He is holy. He is set apart. He is pure. In her book, Fear and Faith, Trillia Newbell says it this way. He, talking about God, is completely other than anything our finite minds can imagine. And though we are made in his image, he is nothing like us. We can be like him, but he is not like us. I love that. We can be like him. We are made in his image. There should be things in us that our unbelieving friends look around us and see Jesus in us. We can be like him. We're made to reflect him. We create his image. But he is not like us. He is perfect. He is pure. He is holy. And, you know, there are many attributes of God, and I would definitely encourage you to study them all. But this morning, I just wanted to highlight a few that are going to help us as we walk from fear to freedom and seek to trust him. I'm not going to cover them in detail because obviously we'll be here forever. But just a few headlines. And number one is the sovereignty of God. In 1 Peter 5, 6, tells us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. God is sovereign. His hand is mighty. He's all-powerful. He's powerful over all things. Jeremiah 18.6 says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. We are like clay in God's hand. He moulds us. He shapes us. He's in control. He's forming us into the people that he wants us to be. A.W. Tozer defines the sovereignty of God as follows. He says, To say that God is sovereign is to say that he is supreme over all things, that there is no one above him, (laughs) that he is absolute Lord over all creation. God isn't just sovereignly in control and moulding and shaping us as people, but nothing happens without God allowing it. A leaf doesn't fall from the tree without God allowing it. 
A plane doesn't fall from the sky without God allowing it. Our hearts don't stop beating. God is sustaining <laughs> our hearts. Nothing happens without God allowing it. He's sovereign over all of creation. Isn't that encouraging when we think about those things? You know, our fear tells us that we need to be in control, that we need to seek to control the situations around us. But God's sovereignty reminds us that, and reassures us that he is in control. He knows all things. He's perfect. He's all-wise. He's all-knowing. His thoughts are not his thoughts, not our thoughts. <clears throat> his ways are not our ways. He's not like us. He doesn't always do things the way we would like him to. But he is holy. He is greater than us. He's far greater. And we know this, I think, through studying the Exodus. It's just been amazing to see God at work. And you know, Pharaoh, the most um, powerful man in Egypt, was no match for God. Even the times he tried to fight God, God always wins. The Red Sea, the power of nature, was no match for God. We saw how God parted the sea and that the Israelites threw and it came crashing down on the Egyptians. There is no match for God. We see that again and again as he provides for the Israelites, as he saves them from the Egyptians, as he continues to provide for them for food, for all they needed in the wilderness. In the difficult situations they're facing, it's not easy. But you see God provide. You see him care for them. See, God is absolute Lord over all creation. And that is why we can trust him. He is sovereign. We don't need to fight for control because God is in control. We just need to remember that he is sovereign and he's in control and that nothing can happen, that he is not allowing, that he's caring for us through. But not only do we need to remember that God is sovereign, we need to remember that he is wise. We need to remember the wisdom of God. Psalm 104 verse 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. You know, God has always existed. He knows all things, and his wisdom knows, means he knows what's best. You know, as us, we're learning new things every day. But God is not like that. He knows all things. He knows all things from creation through to eternity. He's not learning new information. He knows all things. And he doesn't do anything in his sovereignty that isn't wise. We can trust him that he's going to do what's best because he's all-knowing, he's wise, and he always does what's best. And he isn't going to do anything in his sovereignty that isn't loving, which is the third thing we need to remember about God, is the love of God. Again, in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, it says, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He loves us. We are his children. Think about the people in your life that you love. Think about how you feel about them. Think about how you want them to come to you. You want to hear what's on their hearts. He loves us. He wants us to come to him. He cares for us through all we're going through. And what the gospel is where God shows his um, love for us in fullest form. And 1 John 4, 10 says this. It says, In this is love, that we not have not loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, God sent his one and only son to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could be reconciled back into that relationship with him that Adam and Eve had enjoyed, that intimate, fully satisfying, joyful relationship. You know, what more could God do to show his love for us? You know, don't grow familiar with that, the fact that he sent his son for you, just you. I think we can think of it as like a corporate thing, which it is, but he sent his son for Mina, for Chelsea, for Jen, for Marinette. So think about that. God sent his son for you. He loves you personally. 
He's not just an authoritarian father who's standing off in the distance, who's sovereign and he's waiting to punish us every time we mess up. You know, I think sometimes we can have that view of God that he's like this angry father in the corner waiting to punish us, but he's not. He loves us. He cares for us. And he knows what's best. He knows our thoughts and our fears. He tells us to cast our cares on him, but he knows. But he wants us to come to him and he provides all our, for all our needs. He met our biggest need, which is our need for a saviour. So if he's done that, how is he not then also going to provide for every other need that we have? We really don't need to be fearful when we remember who God is. When we understand and know these things about God, that he is sovereign, that he is wise, that he loves us, when we truly believe them, not just in our head, not just saying them with our mouths, but when we really believe them in our hearts, then it's then that we start to trust him. It's then that we start to let go of the control in our lives. You know, we need to remember that who God is. And the third thing we need to do if we're going to move from fear to freedom is to grow in our fear of the Lord. You know, not all fear is sinful. Deuteronomy 5.29 says this. It says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. You know, we were created to fear God. That was the original design for fear. In creation, fear was designed to fill our souls with awe and wonder and amazement at who God is, to fill our relationship with him, a perfect, intimate relationship that would drive us towards God, not in um, running away from him as scared and afraid, but to drive us to God in reverential awe, a fear that leaves us satisfied, fulfilled in him, to experience true, true joy, not being scared and afraid, but a fear that would leave us in awe, wanting to obey him because we know who he is. A fear that is good and that is for our good and that is, is says in Deuteronomy 5.29 that things will go well for us. So fear the Lord. Make him number one. Mm-hmm. Obey him. Things will go well for us. That doesn't mean that we're going to get everything we want. doesn't mean our life plan is going to fall into place the way we think it would. doesn't mean we're not going to have hard times. We will. But he is good and things will go well for us. He will care for us. He is with us through these things. And that is why in Proverbs 31.30 says this, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Above all things, this woman in Proverbs 31 was praised for a fear of the Lord. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? Does it mean that we should be scared of him? Because he's sovereign and over everything? Does it mean we should be cowering in the corner like a, a dog if a scared, angry owner? No, it doesn't. The fear of the Lord means that we know him and that we trust him. It means that we run to him. It means that we put him back on the rightful place of the throne of our lives. It means to fill our soul with awe and wonder, to study who he is until we stand amazed and just say, wow. A fear that drives us to God, not away from God. So how can we cultivate this reverential awe before him? Well, firstly, we need to sit at his feet. We need to read his word. We need to study more of who he is, study his attributes, read good books on the attributes of God and fill our mind with these truths. And then secondly, we need to pray because actually we can't do it. The fear of the Lord begins with a heart change, which actually only God can do. So we need to pray. Jeremiah 32:40 says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. We cry out to God to change our hearts. 
we cry out to him to help us cultivate a deeper fear of him because we can't actually do this. All we can do is position ourselves to receive that grace and ask for that grace through reading his word, through studying good material on the attributes of God, but we can't actually make our hearts fear him. So we need to make sure we are praying and crying out to him to change our hearts and to be that number one in our life. In her book, Fear and Faith, Trillian Newman also writes, we don't have to be crippled by fear because we have a God who holds the oceans in the hollow of his hands. He doesn't promise our lives will be easy, far from it, but he does promise to take care of us, his daughters, till the very end and for all eternity. Ultimately, we fight fear by trusting in the Lord and fearing him. Now, does God promise that we'll always be healthy? Does he promise that we'll never get sick? That we'll never get cancer? Does he promise that we'll get those exam results that we need, that we'll get into that uni that we've been planning to go through for years? Does he promise that we'll get that job that on paper seems so perfect? Does he promise that we'll get that house we've been saving for? Does he promise that we'll get married? Or that if we do get married, it will be happy ever after? Does God promise that we'll have children? Or that we'll never lose a child? Or that our children grow up to know and follow Jesus? No, he doesn't promise any of those things. But what he does promise is that he's with us, that he's in control, that he's looking after us, and that he will give us the grace as we walk through this life, this life and these things we face. And he doesn't give us the grace for our imaginations, and this can be definitely be something that I can do. You can't look into the future and think, well, what if, what if this happens? You know, how will I cope? What if, you know, what if I do lose a child? What if what we know financially we're not secure in the future? God doesn't give us the grace for our imaginations. He give us the grace for today. So we have to focus on today and look to him for the grace that he will provide. He will sustain us. So when the fears of this world consume us, we must humble ourselves, remember who God is, and fear him. And that is how we will move from fear to freedom. And that is my prayer for us as ladies at the Sovereign Grace Church, that we would become ladies who fear the Lord and live in the freedom that brings. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that you're all wise. We thank you that you love us. Lord, thank you that it's all about you. Thank you that you keep your promises you made to us. Thank you that you are faithful. And thank you that we can trust you. And Lord, I pray as we leave this morning, Lord, that you would help us to go in faith, Lord, um, not mindful of all the things we're fearful of, but mindful of you and who you are, Lord. Would you seek to grow us in this? Would you seek to help us move from fear to freedom? And would you be glorified in our lives? Amen.